Deep within the forest, inland from the shore, a monastery is tucked away from prying eyes. The outside structure appears small, barely the size of a pair of normal forest dwellings. Weather-beaten, brittle, and old, the surface shows the years plainly. The moss-covered, solid stone walls cover the remnants of ancient white paint, and the red, thatched roof gives the structure a medieval quality. Hooded, robed figures of the monks that live there are hunched over the gardens, growing vegetables in plots and fruit in the orchards, utilizing methods unchanged for millennia. The occasional droid floating past them with a bundle of produce is the only sign of technology for miles. Hello and welcome to History Obscura. This week I'm going to try to finish up our 10 days in the Madhouse book series because uh, this week, well after this week, I'm picking up and moving country again. And since the script's all ready to go, this is our best bet at a full episode. Once things settle down, I'll get more into some shiny new, well-researched topics. But for now, I hope you enjoy the ending of a story we actually started last year. Chapter 15, Incidents of Asylum Life. There is little in the wards to help one pass the time. All the asylum clothing is made by the patients, but sewing does not employ one's mind. After several months' confinement, the thoughts of the busy world grow faint, and all the poor prisoners can do is sit and ponder over their hopeless fate. In the upper halls, a good view is obtained of the passing boats and New York. Often, I tried to picture to myself, as I looked out between the bars, to the lights faintly glimmering in the city, what my feelings would be if I had no one to obtain my release. I have watched patients stand and gaze longingly toward the city they, in all likelihood, will never enter again. It means liberty and life. It seems so near, and yet heaven is not further from hell. Do the women pine for home? Excepting the most violent cases, they are conscious that they are confined in an asylum. An only desire that never dies is the one for release, for home. One poor girl used to tell me every morning, I dreamed of my mother last night. I think she may come today and take me home. That one thought, that longing is always present, yet she has been confined some four years. What a mysterious thing madness is. I have watched patients whose lips are forever sealed in a perpetual silence. They live, breathe, eat. The human form is there, but that something which the body can live without, but which cannot exist without the body, was missing. I have wondered if behind those sealed lips there were dreams we can not of, or if all was blank. Still, as sad as those are the cases when the patients are always conversing with invisible parties. I've seen them wholly unconscious of their surroundings and engrossed with an invisible being. Yet, strange to say, 
that any command issued to them is always obeyed, in about the same manner as a dog obeys his master. One of the most pitiful delusions of any of the patients was that of a blue-eyed Irish girl who believed she was forever damned because of one act in her life. Her horrible cry, morning and night, I am damned for all eternity, would strike horror to my soul. Her agony seemed like a glimpse of the inferno. After being transferred to Hall 7, I was locked in a room every night with six crazy women. Two of them seemed never to sleep, but spent the night in raving. One would get out of her bed and creep around the room, searching for someone she wanted to kill. I could not help but think how easy it would be for her to attack any of the other patients confined with her. It did not make the night more comfortable. One middle-aged woman, who used to sit always in the corner of the room, was very strangely affected. She had a piece of newspaper, and from it she continually read the most wonderful things I ever heard. I often sat close by her and listened. History and romance fell equally well from her lips. I saw but one letter given a patient while I was there. It awakened a big interest. Every patient seemed thirsty for a word from the world, and they crowded around the one who had been so fortunate and asked hundreds of questions. Visitors make but little interest and a great deal of mirth. Miss Maddie Morgan, in Hall 7, played for the entertainment of some of the visitors one day. They were close about her until one whispered that she was a patient. Crazy, they whispered audibly as they fell back and left her alone. She was amused as well as indignant over the episode. Miss Maddie, assisted by several girls she has trained, makes the evenings pass very pleasantly in Hall 7. They sing and dance. Often, the doctors come up and dance with the patients. One day when we went down to dinner, we heard a weak little cry in the basement. Everyone seemed to notice it, and it was not long until we knew there was a baby down there. Yes, a baby. Think of it. A little, innocent babe born in such a chamber of horrors. I can imagine nothing more terrible. A visitor who came one day brought in her arms her babe. A mother who had been separated from her five little children asked permission to hold it. When the visitor wanted to leave, the woman's grief was uncontrollable and she begged to keep the babe which she imagined was her own. It excited more patients than I'd ever seen excited before at one time. The only amusement, if so it may be called, given the patients outside, is a ride once a week, if the weather permits, on the merry-go-round. It is a change, and so they accept it with some show of pleasure. A scrub brush factory, a mat factory, and the laundry are where the mild patients work. They get no recompense for it, but they get hungry over it. Chapter 16 the last goodbye. The day Pauline Moser was brought to the asylum, we heard the most horrible screams, and an Irish girl, only partly dressed, came staggering like a drunken person up the hall, yelling, 
Hurrah! Three cheers. I have killed the devil. Lucifer, Lucifer, Lucifer. And so on, over and over again. Then she would pull a handful of hair out while she exultingly cried, How I deceived the devils. They always said God made hell, but he didn't. Pauline helped the girl to make the place hideous by singing the most horrible songs. After the Irish girl had been there an hour or so, Dr. Dent came in, and as he walked down the hall, Miss Group whispered to the demented girl, Here is the devil coming. Go for him. Surprised that she would give a mad woman such instructions, I fully expected to see the frenzied creature rush at the door. Luckily, she did not, but commenced to repeat her refrain of, Oh, Lucifer. After the doctor left, Miss Group again tried to excite the woman by saying the pictured minstrel on the wall was the devil. And the poor creature began to scream, You devil, I'll give it to you so that two nurses had to sit on her to keep her down. The attendants seemed to find amusement and pleasure in exciting the violent patients to do their worst. I always made a point of telling the doctors I was sane and asking to be released, but the more I endeavored to assure them of my sanity, the more they doubted it. What are you doctors here for? I asked one whose name I cannot recall to take care of the patients and test their sanity, he replied. Very well, I said. There are 16 doctors on this island, and excepting two, I've never seen them pay any attention to the patients. How can a doctor judge a woman's sanity by merely bidding her good morning and refusing to hear her pleas for release? Even the sick ones know it's useless to say anything, but the answer will be that it is their imagination. Try every test on me, I've urged others, and tell me, am I sane or insane? Try my pulse, my heart, my eyes. Ask me to stretch out my arm and work my fingers, as Dr. Field did at Bellevue, and then tell me if I'm sane. They would not heed me, for they thought I raved. Again, I said to one, You have no right to keep sane people here. I am sane, have always been so, and I must insist on a thorough examination or be released. Several of the women here are also sane. Why can't they be free? They are insane, was the reply, and suffering from delusions. After a long talk with Dr. Ingram, he said, I will transfer you to a quieter ward. An hour later, Miss Grady called me into the hall, and after calling me all the vile and profane names a woman could ever remember, she told me that it was a lucky thing for my hide that I was transferred, or else she would pay me for remembering so well to tell Dr. Ingram everything. You damn hussy, you forget all about yourself, but you never forget anything to tell the doctor. After calling Miss Neville, whom Dr. Ingram was also kindly transferred, Miss Grady took us to the hall above number seven. In Hall 7, there are Mrs. Croner, Miss Fitzpatrick, Miss Finney, and Miss Hart. I did not see as cruel treatment as downstairs, but I heard them make ugly remarks and threats, twist the fingers and slap the faces of the unruly patients. The night nurse, Conway, I believe her name is, is very cross. In Hall 7, if any of the patients possessed any modesty, they soon lost it. 
Everyone was compelled to undress in the hall before their own door and to fold their clothes and leave them there until morning. I asked to undress in my room, but Miss Conway told me if she ever caught me at such a trick, she would give me cause not to want to repeat it. The first doctor I saw here, Dr. Caldwell, chucked me under the chin, and as I was tired refusing to tell where my home was, I would only speak to him in Spanish. Hall 7 looks rather nice to a casual visitor, and is hung with cheap pictures and has a piano, which is presided over by Miss Maddie Morgan, who formerly was in a music store in this city. She has been training several of the patients to sing with some show of success. The artiste of the hall is under, pronounced Wanda, a Polish girl. She is a gifted pianist when she chooses to display her ability. The most difficult music she reads at a glance, and her touch and expression are perfect. On Sunday, the quieter patients, whose names have been handed in by the attendants during the week, are allowed to go to church. A small Catholic chapel is on the island, and other services are also held. A commissioner came one day and made the rounds with Dr. Dent. In the basement, they found half the nurses gone to dinner, leaving the other half in charge of us, as was always done. Immediately, orders were given to bring the nurses back to their duties until after the patients had finished eating. Some of the patients wanted to speak about their having no salt, but were prevented. The insane asylum on Blackwell's Island is a human rat trap. It is easy to get in, but once there, it is impossible to get out. I had intended to have myself committed to the violent wards, the lodge in retreat, but when I got the testimony of two sane women and could give it, I decided not to risk my health and hair, so I did not get violent. I had, toward the last, been shut off from all visitors, and so when the lawyer, Peter A. Hendricks, came and told me that friends of mine were willing to take charge of me if I would rather be with them than in the asylum, I was only too glad to give my consent. I asked him to send me something to eat immediately on his arrival in the city, and then I waited anxiously for my release. It came sooner than I'd hoped. I was out in line taking a walk, and I'd just gotten interested in a poor woman who'd fainted away while the nurses were trying to compel her to walk. Goodbye, I'm going home, I called to Polly Moser as she went past with a woman on either side of her. Sadly, I said farewell to all I knew as I passed them on my way to freedom and life, while they were left behind to a fate worse than death. Adios, I murmured to the Mexican woman. I kissed my fingers to her, and so I left my companions of Hall 7. I had looked forward so eagerly to leaving the horrible place, yet when my release came and I knew that God's sunlight was to be free for me again, there was a certain pain in leaving. For ten days I had been one of them. Foolishly enough, it seemed intensely selfish to leave them to their sufferings. I felt a quixotic desire to help them by sympathy and presence, but only for a moment. The bars were down, and freedom was sweeter to me than ever. Soon I was crossing the river and nearing New York. 
Once again, I was a free girl after 10 days in the madhouse on Blackwell's Island. Chapter 17, The Grand Jury Investigation. Soon after I'd bidden farewell to the Blackwell's Island Insane Asylum, I was summoned to appear before the grand jury. I answered the summons with pleasure because I longed to help those of God's most unfortunate children whom I had left prisoners behind me. If I could not bring them that boon of all boons, liberty, I hoped at least to influence others to make life more bearable for them. I found the jurors to be gentlemen and that I need not tremble before their 23 august presences. I swore to the truth of my story, and then I related all, from my start at the temporary home until my release. Assistant District Attorney Vernon M. Davis conducted the examination. The jurors then requested that I should accompany them on a visit to the island, and I was glad to consent. No one was expected to know of the contemplated trip to the island, yet we had not been there very long before one of the commissioners of charity and Dr. MacDonald of Ward's Island were with us. One of the jurors told me that in conversation with a man about the asylum, he heard that they were notified of our coming an hour before we reached them. This must have been done while the grand jury were examining the insane pavilion at Bellevue. The trip to the island was vastly different to my first. This time we went on a clean, new boat, while the one I had traveled in, they said, was laid up for repairs. Some of the nurses were examined by the jury and made contradictory statements to one another, as well to my story. They confessed that the jury's contemplated visit had been talked over between them and the doctor. Dr. Dent confessed that he had no means by which to tell positively if the bath was cold and of the number of women put into the same bath. They knew the food was not what it should be, but said it was due to lack of funds. If nurses were cruel to their patients, had he any positive means of ascertaining it? No, he had not. He said all the doctors were not competent, which was also due to the lack of means to secure good medical men. In the conversation with me, he said, I'm glad you did this now. And had I known your purpose, I would have aided you. We have no means of learning the way things are going except to do as you did. Since your story was published, I found a nurse at the retreat who had watches set for our approach, just as you had stated. She was dismissed. Miss Anne Neville was brought down, and I went into the hall to meet her, knowing that the sight of so many strange gentlemen would excite her, even if she be sane. It was as I feared. The attendants had told her she was going to be examined by a crowd of men, and she was shaking with fear. Although I'd left her only two weeks before, she looked as if she'd suffered a severe illness in that time, so changed was her appearance. I asked her if she'd taken any medicine, and she answered in the affirmative. I then told her that all I wanted her to do was tell the jury all we'd done since I was brought with her to the asylum, so they would be convinced that I was sane. She only knew me as Miss Nellie Brown and was wholly ignorant of my story. She was not sworn, 
but her story must have convinced all hearers of the truth of my statements. When Miss Brown and I, she said, were brought here, the nurses were cruel and the food was too bad to eat. We did not have enough clothing, and Miss Brown asked for more all the time. I thought she was very kind, for when a doctor promised her some clothing, she said she would give it to me. Strange to say, ever since Miss Brown has been taken away, everything is different. The nurses are very kind and we are given plenty to wear. The doctors come to see us often and the food is greatly improved. Did we need more evidence? The jurors visited the kitchen. It was very clean and two barrels of salt stood conspicuously open near the door. The bread on exhibition was beautifully white and wholly unlike what was given us to eat. We found the halls in the finest order. The beds were improved and in Hall 7, the buckets in which we were compelled to wash had been replaced by bright new basins. The institution was on exhibition, and no fault could be found. But the women I had spoken of, where were they? No one was to be found where I'd left them. If my assertions were not true in regard to these patients, why should the latter be changed so as to make me unable to find them? Miss Neville complained before the jury of being changed several times. When we visited the hall later, she was returned to her old place. Mary Hughes, of whom I had spoken as appearing sane, was not to be found. Some relatives had taken her away. Where, they knew not. The fair woman I spoke of, who'd been sent here because she was poor, they said had been transferred to another island. They denied all knowledge of the Mexican woman and said there'd never been such a patient. Mrs. Cotter had been discharged, and Bridget McGinnis and Rebecca Farron had been transferred to other quarters. The German girl, Margaret, was not to be found, and Louise had been sent elsewhere from Hall 6. The French woman, Josephine, a great, healthy woman, they said was dying of paralysis and we could not see her. If I was wrong in my judgment of these patients' sanity, why was all this done? I saw Tilly Mayard, and she had changed so much for the worse that I shuddered when I looked at her. I hardly expected the grand jury to sustain me after everything they saw differently from what it had been when I was there. Yet they did, and their report to the court advises all the changes made that I had proposed. I have one consolation for my work. On the strength of my story, the Committee of Appropriation provides one million dollars more than was ever given before for the benefit of the insane. The end. Thanks for listening.